Hello and welcome to the Digital Digest, your weekly telecoms and data center podcast brought to you by the teams at Capacity and Data Economy. I'm your host, Deputy Editor Melanie Mingus, and joining me this week, we have Editor-at-Large Alan Burkett-Gray and Senior Reporter Natalie Bannerman. We're also joined live today by Phil Marangella, who is the CMO of EdgeConnex. Phil, welcome to the Digital Digest and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you. Uh, great to be here. Looking forward to the conversation today. Fantastic. Over the course of this episode, we're going to be talking about the biggest stories from the last week. But first of all, a quick roundup of the headlines. At OpenReach, after revenues dropped 7% year on year, BT is looking for external parties to form joint ventures and help expand its fiber network. NTT Corporation has launched a new subsidiary in Israel to leverage cutting edge Israeli technology. It's due to go live in July. In South Africa, WIOCC has extended its national hyperscale network with 30 new points of presence. Meanwhile, on the north of the continent, Telecom Egypt has selected Juniper Networks for its network capacity expansion and upgrade. And the delisting of China's big three from the New York Stock Exchange has been finalized after all three lost their appeal hearings and will return to China very soon later in this episode. Meanwhile, in satellites, Utilsat is working with Facebook to offer broadband connectivity via Wi-Fi in 12 African countries. And OQ Technology, which has offices in Luxembourg, the UAE, and Rwanda, has asked Nano Avionics to build a tiny satellite for 5G IoT services. It's called Tiger 2, and it's scheduled to launch later this year. And a whistle-stop roundup of this week's financial reports, Q1 results continue to come in. And in recent days, we have heard that Deutsche Telekom's 2020 acquisition of Sprint in the US pushed group net revenues up by 32.3% over the year. Veeam Software has posted another quarter of double-digit growth with an annual recurring revenue increase of 25% year-on-year. And Airtel Africa is reaping the benefits of its tower sales and mobility money division after operating profits increased 24.2%. Um, while in gaming, financial results from EA showed 6.19 billion US dollars in net bookings, up 15% year-on-year and $600 million above the company's full-year projections. And on that note, we're going to go to Natalie now for Telecom's Roundup. Natalie, over to you. Yeah, thanks, Melanie. Um, so starting off in the world of subsea, Aquacoms and Telia Carrier have actually uh, successfully completed a trial with Siena to offer 400 uh, gigabit E commercial services between New York and Frankfurt. Um, the trial actually follows the announcement that we uh, made in March um, that saw Aquacoms upgrade two of its uh, transatlantic subsea cables uh, using Siena's Geo Mesh Extreme uh, solution, um, actually powered by WaveLogic 5 Extreme coherent optical technology, if you can say that two times fast. Um, but for this specific trial, Aquacoms actually provided the transatlantic capacity and the 400 gigabit E service from New York to Frank to London. And uh, Telia Carrier actually provided the, um, the ongoing terrestrial service from London to Frankfurt. Um, through the trial, they were actually able to demonstrate that their traffic can be passed on seamlessly across their respective transmission networks um, using Telia Carrier's um, IP backbone with active 400 gig uh, interfaces routing on, on both continents. It actually reminds me um, of the uh, the demonstration that um, I was witness to back in 2018, which was between uh, Verizon and Colt. Uh, obviously a little bit different because they were using SDN um, technology, but they were also able to make kind of uh, real-time bandwidth changes on each other's network. So obviously a little bit different, but this kind of uh, network kind of sharing and being able to transport data across various networks is certainly becoming the norm. So it was a very interesting story. 
in other news, you know, heading to Asia, the uh, digital and um, analytics and AI uh, division of uh, Malaysia's Axiata Group, ADA or ADA, uh, depending on how you say it, is actually uh, set to receive a 60 million investment from SoftBank, uh, a sum that actually values the unit at $260 million overall. Uh, following the investment, SoftBank uh, will hold a 23% stake in ADA, positioning it as a core digital um, and data marketing partner in Asia. In a statement, uh, the group president and CEO of ADA Axiata said that together with our existing uh, Sumitomo partnership, we can expect this strategic alliance to further fuel ADA's growth momentum within the region as it unlocks synergistic opportunities that will form one of the pillars to deliver on Axiata's digital champion ambition. For its part, SoftBank has said that the allow, uh, allegiance will allow the company to expand its footprint in the region by bringing its customer data platform known as Treasure Data and the consumer base of its communication app called Line to uh, for the benefit of brands and marketers. Um, the director and chairman of SoftBank has actually said that the, in his own words, that this alliance with um, ADA heralds a new theme in this growth strategy as it will enable us to deploy our digital marketing business outside of Japan by leveraging ADA's presence in Asia as a leading data and AI company. Uh, but overall, congratulations to both companies. I'm sure we'll be watching closely. Now, in the Middle East, uh, Helios Towers has entered into an agreement to acquire Omontel's passive tower infrastructure portfolio of 2,890 sites for $575 million in cash. Uh, through the deal, Helios will enter the Middle East infrastructure market, becoming a leading independent tower infrastructure provider in Oman. Uh, the portfolio is expected to actually make revenues of about 59 million and an adjusted EBITDA of 40 million in its first year. Further growth is, is expected through co-location lease-up and 300 build-to-suit sites committed over the next seven years, for which $39 million growth capex is expected to be invested. Uh, the acquisition actually forms part of Helios Tower's uh, new market and strategic growth strategy and is expected to boost the company's earnings um, and as well as its geographic presence. Um, in addition, once completed, Helios Towers and Omontel will also enter into a long-term service contract for 15 years. The transaction itself is due to close by the end of 2021, subject to approval from Helios's shareholders, as well as customary closing conditions, which also includes approval from the telecoms regulatory authority of Oman. Now, lastly, uh, we're going to head to China for a, a story that has both kind of technological and social implications. Uh, China's Communist Party is said to be trialing a social credit system that could see slow down Internet connectivity as a possible punishment. The national credit information sharing platform has actually been in development by the Chinese Communist Party uh, since 2014 uh, with the aim of monitoring the moral behavior of its citizens and score them based on their social credit. Uh, according to uh, a, a, a government document that was actually published in 2015, the new social structure aims to, and I quote, forward the construction of sincerity in government affairs, commercial sincerity, social sincerity, and judicial uh, credibility as, as main content to take 
uh, to take moving forward the construction of um, sincerity culture and establishing mechanisms to encourage sincerity and punish insincerity as focal points. Uh, according to reports, uh, the database for this new social ranking system will be managed by China's economic planning team, the National Development and uh, Reform Commission, uh, the People's Bank of China, as well as the Chinese court systems. The new ranking system will be used for both individuals as well as private companies and government organizations. And just as with private credit scores, a person can actually improve their score depending on their behavior. Social credit um, offenses include bad driving, smoking in non-smoking zones, buying too many video games, spending too long playing video games, uh, making frivolous purchases, uh, posting on social media and posting fake news online. Um, as for punishments, um, these include travel bans, not being allowed to go to restaurants, renting a home, having insurance, inclusion from uh, higher education and, as I mentioned, slow internet. Uh, according to Rachel Botsman, who is the author of Who Can You trust. Uh, people with low ratings will have slower internet speeds, restricted access to restaurants and removal of their rights to travel, as I previously mentioned. Um, so we can obviously draw parallels to this particular stories, you know, and the ongoing net neutrality debate that's been going on in the West for years. Um, it's certainly an interesting comment, uh, concept. Um, so we'll certainly be uh, looking to see how this works. Um, yeah, but um, I, I'd be curious to know um, how, yeah, how this will uh, unfold uh, in, in time. Indeed, yeah, that really is the dark side of big data, isn't it? And um, yeah, because I've been reading up on this since um, since you wrote that story a couple of days ago, Natalie. Um, this was originally intended to combat counterfeiting and fraud, um, which kind of reminds us of the biometric database that Mexico has been trying to introduce recently. Um, and obviously in the Middle East, the Gulf states also collect similar information for their national ID cards. But in China, it's not just the fact that they collect this data and maintain these databases. Like you said, it's how they're using it. It's the sophistication of, sorry, the sophistication of the data collection tools, like for example, facial recognition, um, which makes the news frequently um, in terms of what's happening in China, whereas conversely in Europe, for example, the European Commission is looking to ban it in public places for up to five years. Um, so yeah, it's, it really is um, quite an interesting one, but the net neutrality angle of that um, is, yeah, it's, it's a story that's going to keep on giving. Um, and obviously the ISPs are in on it as well. But um, Alan, China's your um, your specialist subject area. What, what's your take on this story? Well, I, I, I'm, yes, it's sad. It's uh, I'm shocked, but not surprised. To use the old cliche, I mean, it has been something that's coming along. I remember having a, a chat with somebody in Hong Kong a few years ago about facial recognition and how really Chinese government was interested in in extending it. Uh, and of course, they've really built their own facial recognition apps because, or software, because most of them were designed, frankly, by uh, white Californian young men, um, uh, and they didn't work for anybody who wasn't a white Californian young man. Um, and so anybody with, you know, a different coloured skin, uh, the old facial recognition systems didn't work properly. So they they put a lot of effort in software designers into uh, doing it, and it's it's a really sad outcome of what's happened and. I think it's probably going to well we've seen over the revolutions and uh, or, or attempted revolutions in in the middle east uh, and other places over the last uh, uh, in india in myanmar and so on and so forth over the last few years that actually cutting off internet access is seems to be now a, a tool in the government's uh, war chest if people are showing uh, discord, even showing re reasonable discontent in, in their government. And of course, that's a completely different attitude to 
you know, in this part and a lot of the world, we value being able to um, challenge governments. Uh, in much of the world, sadly, governments regard any expression of, uh, of different, different opinion by their citizens as being something to suppress rather than something to say that's part of democracy. Because, of course, they're not democracies, many of these countries. But yeah, it's a, it's a sad day and a good story by Natalie. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly something that um, we're going to be digging uh, a little bit deeper into. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of echo all those sentiments. I think it will be interesting to see what the rules will be around those kind of, you know, social credit systems. And does that credit system extend for uh, people who are in China working or those who are traveling? You know what I mean? If, I, if I'm in China for an event and I do something that is, you know, maybe considered not socially acceptable, am I going to expect, you know, for the next day for my, my internet to... To suddenly go down and how do you enforce that and all the other kind of you know messy elements that go with it um yeah i think it will be an interesting one but uh, certainly something i think we're going to be digging into a, a little bit more over capacity so yeah yep. watch this space and and if you do plan to go to china well good luck getting a media visa natalie because that's what, that. said what you've just said <laughs> <laughs> it'll all be on a big system in Beijing. <laughs> yep and internet isn't the only thing that they can take from you. Um, so apparently, according to a story in the New York Times dated 2020, um, one city that I don't know how to pronounce the name of, so I won't attempt to, um, but one city published images of people who had gone out in public wearing their pajamas as a shame tactic. And basically on the city's like official WeChat account, they posted the picture of the person, their name as recognized by the facial ID um, and part of their ID number. Um, wow. as wow. they called it um, uncivilized behavior so um, yeah not just your internet if your internet speed goes Natalie it's the best thing that can happen um, but yeah interesting how they're um, how they're approaching that one well, you, you um, just mentioned WeChat Melanie I mean the, the thing about China is that it's no longer a uh, cash economy everything is paid for using WeChat and other uh, electronic payment services so if your internet goes down, they can restrict it. They can cut it down. There was a, I remember a play a few years ago about somebody who'd be set in the UK, but set in the modern of science fiction. You know how governments or authorities could basically close somebody off by just removing all their access to cash and payment and services and things like that. And you think if you lose your internet access, you lose your ability to make payments. You, you starve. It's a big mm -hmm. threat. Yeah, and there's also the threat now as well that it could be rolled out in Hong Kong, um, yeah. Macau as well, which originally it was intended just for mainland mainland China. Um, but yeah, let's let's watch the space. Um, but anyway, Alan, staying with you, um, today we're talking satellites and open RAN. What's been happening? Yes, uh, more news from OneWeb. That's the satellite company that India's Bahati uh, group and the UK government rescued from financial disaster last year. And then since then, they've had uh, SoftBank and Hughes and Utilsat have come in as well as shareholders. Um, the company, which plans to start commercial services later this year, um, initially everyone everywhere from 50 degrees north up to the Arctic, up to the North Pole, is building up its credibility in the military market in the US. Um, and this possibly puts what happened last year in to give some sort of illumination because uh, the uh, governments of the NATO governments particularly so US, UK and other Western allies were worried that OneWeb 
might fall into uh, Russian or Chinese hands. I discuss it was in chapter 11 and the, the laws about what you can do with a company in chapter 11, you know, very strict. And if somebody had come along with an offer, but they happen to be Chinese or they happen to be a, a front company, um, there was really legally nothing they could do about it. So the government, UK government, and Bahati last summer, so August, I think it was, did a huge amount of work behind the scenes, which will emerge in years to come, uh, to make sure that they'd secured its future for the Western democracies. Um, uh, so what happened is that there were two announcements from OneWeb in quick succession, which shows that actually probably the military in the US already had its eye on OneWeb and wanted to secure its future. First, its shareholder, Hughes Network Systems, um, which obviously has very close military connections, um, won a contract with the US Air Force to provide broadband services in the Arctic. Uh, it's about the only satellite company that does have access in the uh, Arctic because, because of its sort of orbit, because it's a polar orbit, therefore it covers the Arctic. Whereas the standard geostationary satellites, which are over the equator, they can't reach the uh, Arctic or the Antarctic because they're below the horizon. Um, so big contract there. Um, and secondly, OneWeb is going to buy a Texas-based military satellite company, which it could never have done if it was Russian or Chinese owned, uh, called Trustcom. And that's the company that's so secure, its headquarters are actually on a real military base behind all the barbed wire and the armed guards and things like that uh, in Texas. Um, the, that announcement has a, a useful statistic about the bandwidth that customers can expect. That's 195 megahertz, megabits, which is quite a decent rate. Um, and of course, because it's a low orbit satellite system, the latency will be low as well, just a few milliseconds. So if your uh, military uh, exercise either in the Arctic or Alaska or I guess northern Canada, but I don't think the US is going to invade northern Canada yet. Um, they, oh, hey, look, I just realized uh, north of Russia and all that sort of cold bits of the world. Um, if you've got access to a really good satellite system with 195 megabits into any receiver, then you've got a very good system. You know, none of these old crackly radios. There is no coverage from conventional technology in, in the Arctic. So OneWeb is just a dream for them. So I can see now why it was uh, they were so keen to protect it. Yeah. Um, then there's a big. Uh, announcement on open van this week to go back onto the ground or at least to just a few hundred meters above the ground five big european mobile operators uh beginning of this year said that they were going to collaborate on open radio access networks they want to rid themselves of the shackles of just being reliant on two uh, operators two vendors rather Ericsson and Nokia, uh, ZTE and Huawei, the Chinese big vendors in the industry, having been uh, excluded from the market uh, over the last few years, even though you know companies like Orange and Vodafone and others really loved them, uh, really loved Huawei's technology uh, because of the security concerns and American pressure and a bunch of other things that probably we haven't been allowed to see yet. They said, no, you can't uh, get Huawei or ZTE. So they've they're stuck with two vendors, but actually this is probably going to be good for the industry because it's opening up a whole the market to a whole new range of companies uh, using open source techniques. Uh, and five 
operators, Deutsche Telekom, Orange, based in France, Telefonica, based in Spain, Tim, based in Italy, and Vodafone, based in the UK, all announced uh, an open RAN uh, partnership earlier in this year, earlier this year, saying that they wanted to plan a speedy implementation. Well, they released a document this week which shows how speedy it is and also what their requirements are. And it's going to be quite stringent for vendors wanting to go into the ga game. Um, they say energy efficiency is a priority. And that's interesting because last week, I think it was, I mentioned Next Generation Mobile Networks Alliance, NGMN, which had also set out its priorities for 6G and energy efficiency and so on are also are among their requirements for the next generation of mobile networks. And they said energy efficiency is a global requirement uh, and Open RAN really has to be uh, absolutely at the top, um, most, any, most as en energy efficient as possible, uh, starting with the radio transmitters, but also the whole radio infrastructure and also powering down when there's not much load on the network. So if, there's, if it's middle of the night and there's only one person wandering along the street with their mobile, you don't use so much power and you can direct it and all that sort of thing. And they also want security. The problem with open source is that it is open source, that lots of people have access to it and they thought security was a big risk. They want to make sure security is right at the top of their list of priorities. Um, but apart from all those really demanding targets, the biggest, I think, is that they want a large scale network rollout starting in 2022. That's next year, uh, which means they will be moving very fast. And they want not a few rural deployments like Vodafone has already done in the middle of Wales and uh, Orange has done in uh, I'm trying to remember which African country it was. I think it's um, DRC. Um, it may be Central African Republic, but I can't remember. But anyway, Orange is doing Orange and Vodafone and others have identified Open RAN certainly a year ago as somewhere for low density networks. Now they're saying, no, we want macro deployment, urban networks as soon as possible, large scale rollout. So um, this is going to be quite shaking um, a shake up for the industry and they want it to be a competitive alternative to traditional RAN. And so the operators say that they don't want to compromise on network quality. You don't want to go into a, an area that's served by an open RAN mast that you think, oh, this is awful. I just want to move away and get somewhere better. Uh, they also want it to support because a lot of these masts also have 2G and 3G services coming off them. They also want it to be able to run 2G and 3G and small cells and all that sort of thing and interoperability between all the different things. Then they want an open cloud platform. It's really completely changing the whole architecture of mobile telecoms as we've known it since, what, 25 years, I think. It's a very, very much, uh, oh, I'm going to use, a, no, I won't. I was going to say paradigm shift, but it is a real change in the whole industry. And it's uh, this uh, opposition to Huawei and ZTE has really made the industry focus and they're going to come up with some interesting techniques over the next year and start rolling them out. And of course, there will be, com there'll be a competitive market. You know, if you don't like uh, a radio network product from one company, there should be another five or six from around the world that you would be able to go and they would all be not necessarily plug compatible to use an old uh, computing term, but they should be, you should they should adhere to standards and you should be able to use them with a minimum of fuss. And I think that's just going to change the mobile network, especially as we roll out 
5G everywhere and then 6G everywhere from, say, what, 2028, 20, 29, that sort of era. Um, there's a lot of work going on in uh, mobile, uh, in, in 6G mobile at the moment. Uh, for example, if I can move on to another thing that the Next Generation Mobile Network Alliance announced this week, which is a collaboration with the Linux Foundation and uh, I think, as Philip Marangello will know, you know, Linux is absolutely key to a lot of data center operation, a lot of network operation. Uh, and uh, I spoke this week to Anita Derla, who's the CEO of NGMN Alliance. She used to be at Vodafone. She's a telecoms engineer. Uh, and then she went to, uh, she was at Philips and then Vodafone, and then she was at Accenture. And she came into NGMN last year, really, very exciting time because they're really setting out the priorities for 6G. And as I said, one of them is energy efficiency, um, but there's a lot of other things that they're doing and they're working with Linux, uh, the Linux Foundation people, including energy efficiency. So yeah, it's that's going to be the theme of the next few years as we go up to 6G. So a lot going on suddenly all of, and, and you know, it's consequences. You think, you didn't realize when Donald Trump started railing against Huawei, whether he was right or wrong, it set off a whole cascade of effects across the industry, which is quite extraordinary. Melanie, back to you. Thanks, Alan. Yeah, extraordinary is definitely the word the word here. Um, two points, just on the scale of this architectural change that you were describing on the um, on the open run news with the big five. Um, 2022, is that possible? It seems like a lot of work and we're already nearly in June of 20. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know it's, it is extraordinary and uh, I need to test that with some CTOs and I've already got some calls out to to people and just see how viable this is because I think it's, um, and certainly they've got some experience, you know, Vodafone put, a, as I say, a, a mast in the middle of Wales last year, I think it was, um, and Orange have done some experience, and I would guess, gets, and Tim also, Telecom Italia was, used to be, uh, set up its own uh, open RAN network in the city of Faenza, better known for its porcelain, um, uh, oh, a few weeks ago. So I think people are getting experience, they're testing it. And I think the the whole basis of the fact that it's open RAN is obviously some parts of radio and very specifically radio and radio is one of those magic arts rather than a technology. But a lot of it is off the shelf hardware that you could buy just as a data center operator could buy or as a IT manager in a bank or a hospital or whatever could buy. I think the whole idea is to bring it down to as as much industry standard parts as you can. And it's a, a dream, been a dream of the telecoms industry for 15, 20 years, I think, that they realized that they were in hock. I mean, then there were a lot more vendors, you know, there were people like Marconi and Nortel and so on um, in the industry. And you had a choice. Although, of course, once you bought from Nortel, you basically your expansion route was confined to using Nortel technology and Nortel systems. It was a bit like the IT industry used to be. I think I don't think they would have said said these things this week in that these are this is our time scale. They're going to give more details in the next few weeks. But I think and, and this is written by the CTOs. I don't think they would have said it 
if they were going to fall flat on their face and say, oh, actually, sorry, nobody, nobody can supply us. Let's go away and think again, think again. I think they must be quite sure. And I think any vendor worth its salt over the last year or two has been working hard to follow Open Van. And we've got the Open Van Alliance. We've got uh, Facebook's uh, Telecom Info, uh, Info Project. There's a lot of people in various groups around the world been working towards Open Van and other open source telecoms technology. So I think it'll happen. Uh, I don't think they've been so stupid as to set themselves a deadline. And of course, 2022 is is a long year. It could be 18 months away. It could be six months away. But you know, how you measure we have uh, implemented it is uh, is one of those questions. It might be just in a couple of test cities or something like that. But I think they want to roll it out as they continue 5G. Um, and another question I must ask when I talk to the CTOs, is it going to slow down the rollout of 5G because they don't want to commit themselves to existing technology because there's another technology just a few months away? Don't know. We will find out. And if you're a CTO of one of these five companies or one of the other big companies, then get in touch. You know where I am. I'd love to talk to you. Interesting points. Yeah, very good question there. And also, if you're from Nokia or Ericsson, we'd love to hear from you as well. Oh, yes, yes, indeed. Yes, we will be talking all about that and probably some 7G as well next week. Oh, um, 7G. No, 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 no. Why not? <laughs> Um, but thank you, Alan. Um, well, now it's on to the data center segment, um, and it's a full one today. So as mentioned, we are joined live by the CMO of EdgeConnects. Um, but before we get into the interview and the headlines, this week we unveiled DataCloud Global Awards shortlist. Um, I will not read the whole shortlist right now, but there is a link to the shortlist in the post that brought you to this podcast. Um, there are some huge names in there, and given everything that's happened in data centers, Edge, and Cloud in the last year, it's a highly competitive event, um, and we are very, very looking very much looking forward to revealing the winners. Um, so as I mentioned, the link to that shortlist is in the post that brought you to this podcast, and you can register for both the awards and Data Cloud Global Congress through the same link. Um, and th those events run from June 1st to 3rd, which is only a couple of weeks away. Um, but now that plug is over, Natalie is going to bring us a roundup of what has been happening in the world of data economy. Natalie, over to you. Thanks, Melanie. Um, so yeah, in the world of data centers, we're going to start with uh, Digital Edge, the Singaporean data center company um, who actually acquired two further data centers in Tokyo, Japan from um, Atertia Networks. Uh, the two sites totaling 140,000 square feet are actually located in downtown areas of Ninhabashi and Shinjuku and actually represent Digital Edge's uh, third project in Japan and fourth in North Asia since its inception in uh, 2020. So they've made quite a lot of progress in, in a small span space of time. Um, in addition, the deal will boost the company's regional footprint to a total of six data centers in four key metros. Uh, this footprint includes uh, three data centers in Tokyo, one in Seoul, and uh, one in Busan, uh, South Korea, both acquired um, earlier, um, sorry, last year, um, and the development of a 12 megawatt facility in Osaka, which is scheduled to open in the first quarter of 2022. Uh, upon completion of all the transactions in Japan and the opening of the Osaka facility, Digital Edge says it will have invested uh, $200 million to offer customers more than uh, 5,300 cabinets of data center capacity. Uh, so great news for, the, for a fairly new company making uh, fairly fast pro uh, progress. 
Um, Morohub, a digital unit of the Dubai Electricity and Water Authority, has actually partnered with Huawei to build the largest solar power data center in the Middle East and Africa. Um, located at the uh, 3000 megawatt uh, Mohammed bin Rashid El Maktoum solar park, um, the new carbon neutral tier three data center will actually use 100% renewable energy and have a capacity exceeding 100 megawatts. Um, it is the second solar power data center in Dubai, launched by Moro Hub, um, with the other being located in Dubai Marina, uh, another tier three facility, but actually offers um, nine megawatts of uh, power. Um, the first Moro data center uh, consists of around uh, 37,000 square feet, um, but the scale of the new and larger one has not been released, um, nor a timeline for its build, so we will be keeping a close eye uh, to see when that uh, facility opens. Now, over in the US, Digital Fortress has opened the doors to its 100 million data center campus in Richmond, Virginia, after acquiring the site for development earlier this year. Um, it's located on a 100-acre Meadowville uh, technology park, uh, which is actually the first uh, refurbished data center um, 250,000 square feet and is certified to tier three. The site is actually connect connected to the newly built and fully diverse multi-duct fiber system, which offers a four um, milliseconds latency to hubs in Ashburn and Virginia Beach, as well as onward connectivity to subsea fiber systems, which serve uh, both Europe and South America. Uh, the facility also is LEED Gold certified um, with uh, opportunities for significant expansion uh, within the data center to Shell um, and the, there's also opportunities for expansion um, on the wider campus as well. The current availability of the facility consists of um, 18,300 square feet is, uh, square feet of data center space with uh, 4.1 megawatts of power. Um, an additional 200,000 square feet of shell core expansion space uh, supporting up to 25 megawatts of power will also be deployable in under 20 weeks, according to the company. Adjacent land is also available to support future builds, uh, totaling 500,000 square feet and up to 100, meg 100 megawatts of power available um, in a two to three year time horizon. Uh, so a very, very big uh, campus with a lot of potential. Now, lastly, Canadian digital currency miner Hive Blockchain Technologies has actually sold its Norwegian data center site um, at quite a big loss. Uh, the project was actually touted to be the world's biggest. It was actually acquired by the Norwegian subsidiary unit Kolos and has been sold to the local uh, government um, under a share purchase agreement um, after the firm said it was affected by new crypto mining laws and uncertainty around the development. Um, under this new sh uh, share purchase agreement, the company has transferred all of the shares of Kolos to the government, along with a uh, $200,000 payment. Uh, in a statement, the company said that this allows the company to focus on its data centers located in Sweden and Iceland, uh, which actually uh, mine erythium continuously to the cloud. Um, the decision came um, as the Norwegian uh, parliament actually approved a bill saying that cryptocurrency miners would no longer be subject to the previously promised relief on power consumption at the same rate as other power intensive industry. Uh, in a statement, the company 
says, as a result of this legislative change and the uncertainty around the development of this Greenfield project, management concluded that it was no longer profitable, uh, sorry, probable that the company would be able to meet the development conditions. As a result, the land development rights were impaired and were written down to zero dollars from uh, about 15 million dollars as of the 31st of March 2019. Um, so certainly makes sense in terms of their decision making process. Um, but it will be interesting to see whether or not that law will remain in place or whether or not there will be a, a change coming because I think cryptocurrencies and particularly the mining of it is going to uh, have an interesting effect on the data center space. But we will, we will be keeping an eye out on that. Uh, but that's all from me. Thanks, Natalie. We will definitely be keeping an eye on that. You're completely right um, in that trend and those implications there. Um, but thanks so much for that roundup. And now we're going to be speaking to, um, to Philip Marangella. Philip, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the Digital Digest. Thank you. Great to be here. Fantastic. Um, well, we're going to talk today about a few different things. Um, but first of all, I want to talk to you um, about Adani Connects. Um, so Edge Connects is well known as a major player in the world of data centers. But by way of introduction, we're talking 50 facilities across 35 markets. And there's been some big expansion news recently as well. Um, so we're going to talk, to talk about India. Um, now, in late February, you guys announced Adani Connects. And the plan here is for a network of hyperscale data centers across India. And construction has already begun. So first of all, tell us what's happening. Yeah, I mean, it's it's already been a very busy 2021, um, you know, besides India, um, you know, we've expanded in Latin America and, and Santiago, Chile, um, where and we've already established ourselves in Buenos Aires. And I think you'll see more expansions in Latin America coming. Uh, we, we've just recently announced Barcelona in Europe, right, to add our portfolio there. But India was uh, obviously our big announcement for this year in our first foray into uh, Asia. Um, and uh, really excited about that opportunity, um, you know, and, and it's key in, in markets like India to have a great partner, right, in order to be successful. And, and you know, this is a 50-50 JV with Adani uh, Enterprises. Um, and if, if you're not familiar with them, they're one of the largest conglomerates in India. Um, I've, I've built many ports uh, and airports and uh, um, if, involved in power uh infrastructure and so forth and particularly what's interesting for us is the sustainability uh aspect and one of the the largest solar uh manufacturers in india as well as uh having a number of uh major solar farms which will be able to directly feed sustainable energy into our uh, data center footprint um india itself is a underserved market uh, there's decent concentration of facilities in mumbai but beyond that, um, th there's there's you know a relatively uh, underserved markets uh, as I would as I mentioned, um, and you know everywhere from from um, Noida to Chennai to uh, Calcutta and so forth. There's there's a huge need. I mean you have a billion people, uh, tons of mobile, uh, over 600 million uh, mobile users. Um, cloud is coming in significantly, trying to support the financial uh, verticals and manufacturing and so forth. And so there's a need is that country's vision to create this digital transformation in a digital India to have a national footprint of, of data centers. And that's our goal in, in building out both hyperscale and hyperlocal edge data centers across the country. Uh, Chennai is our first market. And so we're already building underway. 
um, and look to open up uh, at the beginning of next year. But very busy, very exciting times. Um, and again, this is our first foray into Asia. And it's going to be, um, you know, um, other announcements uh, coming in the next years in other markets around the region as well. Well, we very much look forward to those. Um, so just focusing on the India one initially then, um, you've, I mean, obviously, Edge Connects goes from hyperlocal to hyperscale, as you mentioned. Um, how will that mix kind of balance out across the country? Are we looking at hyperscale facilities? Are we looking at edge facilities? What what kind of data centers are you building? Yeah, um, no, good point. I mean, look, for us, originally, is kind of the arguably pioneers on the edge uh, side. And, and as we've evolved based on customer demand and requirements, and how they define the edge have kind of grown to also build hyperscale and build to suit uh, um, facilities and, and provide that full spectrum. In India, it's a little bit different, right? In the sense that we'll start with hyperscale in some of those major markets, Mumbai, Chennai, Hyderabad, Noida, and so forth, build out large facilities to support hyperscalers. Um, obviously multi-tenant though, um, but then, evolve to the edge, right? And and build out in those kind of tier two, tier three markets, which it's it's kind of odd to say some of these markets are edge when you know you have millions or tens of millions of people in these markets that that you know uh you know is just massive in their own right. And so um but you know those you know we're gonna start in the select few and then kind of scale out from there, obviously driven by customer demand and and you know, the other difference from our traditional model, too, is we'll also be serving enterprises, right? Uh, the Edge Connects model has traditionally focused purely wholesale on service providers, network, content, cloud, and so forth. And India will be able to service both service providers and uh, enterprise customers as well. Fantastic. Um, now, on the future demand in India, um, JLL has published some research um, that says data capacity will grow from 375 megawatts to 1,078 by 2025. Um, so a couple of questions on that point. Um, first of all, what's your take on those figures and do they match what you're seeing? Um, but also, how does that sit with the projections for Adani Connects and you know the projections that your JV is based on? Yeah. Yeah, no, you know, obviously it's, I've seen that um, and and the folks at JLL are, are you know, well versed on, on the market. Um, but, you know, look, the point being with it is it's it, it is demonstrating it's it's remains a underserved market. It's it's kind of weighted heavily, you know, um, you know, half of that is 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 in Mumbai. And so th there's a lot more demand uh, outside and across the entire country. Um, I do think it's conservative. I do think there's, you know, if you look at all the trends, right, that are um, affecting the data center industry at large globally, um, and you're being, you know, you, you apply those same things, whether it's IoT, whether it's 5G, or as you guys were talking about earlier, 6G, there's a bit of a technological leapfrogging here where you can kind of go straight to the latest and the greatest um, of these technologies. And at the end of the day, the amount of data that's being created is incredible, right? And, and it's both, you know, being pushed out, whether it's streaming, whether it's cloud, whether it's gaming, you know, um, you, you know, you name it. These are all creating um, kind of bottlenecks, right? And the network and, and data center infrastructure that need to be alle alleviated with more capacity, more distributed uh, capacity to be able to more efficiently 
and effectively deliver all that data, you know, both to and fro, right? And so um, I, I just, it's it's a huge market opportunity and that's why that's the first one for us to uh, enter into in Asia that we're very excited about. Fantastic. Can you disclose which market could be your second in Asia? Yeah, I mean, I just say stay tuned uh, in, and, you know, it's it's uh, it's exciting times. I, I mean, it's exciting for the data center industry at large. I mean, we're all building at max capacity right now. And, um, you know, for us, we were recently acquired at the end of last year by EQT, a uh, large Swedish based infrastructure fund and, and you know, working with them and, and you know, their the vision our kind of five year vision for for global growth is is an exciting one and so there's going to be a lot more flags that we're going to be planning across um asia uh europe latam uh and and around the world as 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 we as we try to meet and bring capacity to meet the and and supply to meet the customer demand Fantastic. Well, we look forward to hearing more on, on all those expansions. Um, but just staying with that theme of the growing capacity and, you know, the growing demand and looking also at the emerging tech that's bringing that capacity and demand into, into the industry now. Um, I want to talk to you next about Edge and its potential, because with 5G and IoT and all those other things, um, given how long it takes for new players to establish and scale and then combining that with the runaway demand that we're seeing from these emerging technologies, do you think that at this point there are enough players in the market to meet the future demand that we're going to see kind of, you know, emerge over the next 24 months? Yeah, uh, you know, look, I touched on the demand um, and and it's both the edge and it's hyperscale and everything in between, right? And and uh, it's it's... And I think you know the pandemic and and uh, has has really shined a light on. Look, our homes are the new edge, right? And we're all working. Our kids are studying and gaming, and 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 our families are streaming, and all this and TikToking, right? So all this data that's being consumed and and delivered at the edge and created at the edge and so forth is this is why you really need to kind of re-architect the internet, if you will, right? Because it's always been kind of very much a download-centric uh, dynamic. And with so much data and, you know, this data gravity notion of, of uh, you know, being much more distributed requires far more data centers at the edge to help alleviate those bottlenecks and smartly route the traffic flows of, of all this data, right? Um, it's no longer, I'm talking today from Ashburn, Virginia, right? We're like the mecca of data centers doesn't go away, but it will continue to grow and scale as a major hub, right? Think of this as a London Heathrow or JFK and so forth, but it's all the regional and the smaller airports to help the traffic flows that are arising. That, that's what we're looking to build out. And, you know, we announced, you know, six expansions just a few weeks ago in our existing edge markets, right? Just to meet the demand and the growth that's coming out of the pandemic from our network and content and cloud providers. And we're looking to add more dots at the edge as well. So it's it's kind of in all facets and phases of, of uh, growth and expansion to support these, these trends. And as you said, we haven't even touched on IoT, autonomous vehicles, machine learning, AI, telemedicine. It just, you know, on top of all these things, it's just, you need more network, you need more data centers, you need more digital infrastructure, and it needs to be more proximate from a cost performance security perspective. 
Yeah. Indeed, yeah, and I really, really like the um, the airline analogy that you used there as well. Um, well, another industry trend that gains pace almost daily at the moment is ownership. Um, now, you managed the EQT. You mentioned, sorry, the EQT acquisition last year. Um, what kind of support has that brought you over the last nine to ten months, and what muscle will it bring you moving forwards? Yeah, no, I mean, it's been a great relationship and partnership, and and you know, as a major global uh, player with many kind of digital. Uh, infrastructure assets um, and experience, right? And so helping us, you know, uh, open up new markets, uh, introduce us to new partners um, is, is certainly valuable. And again, as we're all competing as data center operators for, you know, assets around the world, having that, that strength, that experience and that backing helps us kind of win some of these uh, opportunities that we're looking at around the world. So, it's been uh, very um, fortunate that that happened uh, recently and and uh, allows us to accelerate our growth and meet our customer demand. Definitely. Um, and looking ahead now in terms of the trends to watch, um, you've mentioned that you cover everything from hyperlocal type scale and you've also got global expansions in mind on your um and you've just arrived in your newest continent as well in Asia. Um, so with all those things in mind, what are your top three defining trends, the global data center industry for the second half of this year? Um, you know, I think a big one, and, and you hear it more from, from all the providers, is centers around sustainability. Um, I touched on it, and that's what drove our partnership with, with the Downey Group and, and their um, um, kind of solar-based and wind-based and water considerations and so forth. That's what drove that partnership there. But that's how it's 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 table stakes of being more efficient, being more green, following the UN gu guidelines around sustainability. Um, you know, we're currently carbon neutral in terms of our edge footprint globally, um, and and th that's 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 critical. And we're also collaborating with our customers and and partners to, you know, as they also have aggressive um, sustainability goals that they're trying to achieve by 2025 or 2030. And how do we work together as, as a community to collectively, um, you know, achieve these aggressive sustainability goals and kind of self-regulate in that regard. Um, diversity and inclusion and so forth is another big theme that we're, you know, collaborating on. And, you know, we're, traditionally been a, you know, we're old aging, like myself, um, uh, you know, not diverse group than the data center industry, right? And so working with the infrastructure masons, for example, right? Um, you know, we're trying to find solutions to have a di more diverse uh, and inclusive uh, community. We had a great project that we collaborated on that we initiated with the historically black colleges and universities. We started with Hampton University in Virginia um, and did a capstone project, introducing to the data center industry, had them, hey, figure out site selection and design and construction of doing a data center. And what was cool about it is they had no idea what goes on inside, on inside these four walls, right? You just, as you drive by them, they're innocuous, but the cool thing is everything that's going on inside, right? And what it's enabling. And, and as a result, you know, we've, uh, hired two students on from that program. We're looking to replicate it to four more universities in the next semester and then take it globally. It's just one example, right? Working with Salute, which is a great organization that, that takes veterans 
from various militaries around the world, retrains them and, and allows them to come into the uh, data center workforce. And, and uh, you know, it's a win-win for everybody involved. And then, you know, lastly, you know, I think it just continue to innovate on some of the technologies that that enable the data centers, right? We've, we've built a, what we call Edge OS to remotely monitor and manage these data centers or be lights out. And it shined a lot in terms of the pandemic when people couldn't travel, couldn't get to the data center, but still have the peace of mind and the business continuity to, hey, from their home, still manage their deployments inside the Edge Connect facilities and, and you know, continue to uh, operate, you know, 24 seven with, with, with zero negative impact from a customer experience standpoint. So bringing innovations like that above and beyond um, is it will, will be key going forward to support, again, all these great technologies as you push out further to the edge. So I would say those three. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. And those are some of our three favorite trends as well, um, particularly on the diversity and sustainability front. Um, but on that note, I'm going to open it up now to Alan and Natalie. Um, guys, do you have some questions for Philip? I, I, I was going to follow uh, along the diversity thing. You mentioned what you're doing in the US, but you're, as you've just been saying, around the world. What are you doing in the rest of the world, in Europe, in Latin America, in India, and so on? Yeah, no, I mean, look, we we... This has kind of been a proof of concept, right? And and in terms of the relationships with the universities to bring in the next generation uh, in, into um, into the you know uh, data center workforce. Um, and I, I referenced the infrastructure Masons, and it's a global organization, and we have um, through them too ties with many universities that were already kind of in talks about how can we replicate this, right? And and you know not only from an educational standpoint, but from a people standpoint, um, you know, also working with some of these universities that have developed some interesting sustainability technologies and how do we commercialize those and, and integrate that into uh, the, the data center community. But again, you know, it's, it's what's kind of cool, right, is, is, you know, there's in Europe, there's the climate neutral data center pact. There's a lot of collaboration, right? There isn't this kind of, you know, keeping the kimono closed in terms of, hey, we're doing this and we're not gonna share it. There's a lot of collaboration amongst the data center operators, amongst the you know cloud operators and others to how to be more sustainable, right? And it will benefit us all as a, a uh, industry and a, as a planet, right? And then, you know, same on the kind of diversity front and, and you know, some of the learnings and best practices as, as we grow and evolve. So, that's kind of nice to see, right? Um, compared to some other kind of industries, I would say. I, I think we're pretty good um, from from that standpoint. Good. Is he, compared with other industries, is there a, is there some sort of measurement about different industries? That would be an interesting way to go. I would love to love to compare the telecoms yeah. and the data center industry against other industries. I wonder who's doing it. I would guess it'd be some management consultancy that's done a lot of stuff. Yes. Do you know? Do you know of any? I, I no, I I, I do not. <laughs> right. I will dig that out. That's giving yeah. me a new challenge for the next. A few good weeks. topic for, <laughs> for the future. Yeah. So just one for me then. Um, I mean, I always like to ask this question <laughs> because whenever I get somebody from the data center space. But uh, Philip, I was curious to know what you are kind of seeing in terms of um, 
the prevalence of gaming in the kind of data center space, um, but also more so because of, you know, the Adani Connects project, are you seeing um, gaming as a prevalent influence kind of geographically, you know, in India, for example, are you seeing that as having a, a big uh, effect on, on the kind of networks that support it? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, because that's definitely a big driver of the edge, right? Mm -hmm. um, is 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 this cloud gaming is just latency. Uh, and and that gaming experience is so much predicated on being as proximate to the bringing the games to the gamers as close as possible, right? And because if any latency is, is affected, you're going to lose and then you know, it's it's not how good of a gamer you are. It's how good your connection is. And I know my son is a big gamer and he's always, you know, harping on me to get more bandwidth and, and what have you. And I say, hey, man, you're you're in Ashburn. You should be really, really good here. <laughs> There's, don't blame it on me for losing, you know. So um, but you do see the gaming community uh, coming in, deploying, connecting. You do see the network operators. It's It's a big you know, supporting that, right? Um, and, you know, we've had recent announcements with Hurricane Electric and Cloudflare and and so forth, and a lot of, and Telia, and a lot of these network operators putting in more uh, capacity and more edge markets to support, whether it's cloud gaming or all the, you know, growth in streaming and high def streaming and so forth that that that's arising. It goes back to the, to those, um, bottlenecks, right? And again, for us, you know, a great example in the early days for us was uh, like a market like Phoenix. Traditionally, it was served out of Los Angeles, right? A major, you know, data center hub there. But from a performance, from a uh, cost perspective, a lot of the cable operators wanted to put their content um, uh, aggregation routers right there in the phoenix market right to to be able to serve that and along comes the cdns and then you have the rest of the content ecosystem and the gaming is obviously included in that so it that you know we like to talk about some of the sexy new stuff around like iot and all these other things but those traditional edge early adopters are continuing to push and to continue to need it and and you know again india is a great example especially because so many people are doing all of that on their phones. And so you have even more kind of uh, bottlenecks in that regard. And that's where proximity and edge comes into play. Yeah. I have a theory that we're eventually going to see, um, you know, the infrastructure players kind of um, having dedicated um, infrastructure just for the, for our content needs if it continues um, at the rate at which it's going. But that's just yeah. a that's just a thought of mine. I think we'll we'll certainly get something close to that very soon. But thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much, everybody. Um, well, that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. Um, thank you to the team for bringing us latest on all those stories. Huge thanks to Phil for his insight and also his trend predictions. Um, and thanks also to everybody who listened. We will be back next week for our one-year anniversary episode. Um, so very excited about that one. But until then, you can catch up with all the latest from across the telco and data center industries over at capacitymedia.com. The April-May edition of the magazine featuring this year's Power 100 is live online from the 14th of May. And also online, you can sign up to the Daily Telecom's newsletters from Capacity and the weekly newsletters from Data Economy. You can also register for Capacity Middle East, which starts on the 17th of May, and Data Cloud Global, which runs from the 1st to the 3rd of June. For now, that's all from me and the team. Have a great week, take care, and catch you next time. <laughs>